now it's time to hear from a different John. Uh, let me tell you a little story. On February 3rd, 2007, shortly before lunch, our next speaker discovered that he was a chronic liar. He was at home writing a review article on moral psychology when his wife, Jane, walked by his desk. In passing, she asked him not to leave dirty dishes on the counter where she prepared their baby's food. Her request was polite, but its tone added a postscript. Quote, as I have asked you a hundred times before. His mouth started moving before hers had stopped. Words came out. Those words linked themselves up to say something about the baby having woken up at the same time that their elderly dog barked to ask for a walk. And he's, so, I'm sorry, but I just put my, I put my breakfast dishes down wherever I could. In our family, this is John writing, of course, caring for a hungry baby and an incontinent dog is a surefire case, so I was acquitted. Jane left the room and I continued working. I was writing about the three basic principles of moral psychology. The first principle, which we'll might hear about a little bit today, is that intuitions come first, strategic reasoning second. That's a six-word summary of the social intuitionist model. So there I was at my desk writing about how people automatically fabricate justifications of their gut feelings when suddenly I realized that I had just done the same thing with my wife. I disliked being criticized, and I had felt a flash of negativity by the time Jane had gotten to her third word. Can you not... <laughs> Even before I knew why she was criticizing me, I knew I disagreed with her. <laughs> because intuitions come first. The instant I knew the content of the criticism, leave the dirty dishes on the, my inner lawyer went to work searching for an excuse. It's true that I had eaten breakfast, given Max his first bottle, and let Andy out for his first walk, but those events had all happened at separate times. Only when my wife criticized me did I merge them into a composite image of a harried father with too few hands, and I created this fabrication by the time she had completed her one-sentence criticism. I then lied so quickly and convincingly that my wife and I both believed me. I had long teased my wife for altering stories to make them more dramatic when she told them to friends, but it took 20 years of studying moral psychology to see that I altered my stories too. I finally understood, not just cerebrally, but intuitively and with an open heart, the admonitions of sages from so many eras and cultures warning us against self-righteousness. I've already quoted Jesus about the speck and the plank in the eyes. That is a short passage from John, our next speaker's book, uh, The Righteous Mind, which I consider to be something of a classic, a personally extremely helpful book, it, we, as we all know, we live in a society that is not just um, uh, divided, but it feels uh, sometimes uh, irreconcilably so. And uh, Professor Height's work um, is one of the great uh, places of hope where the divides between uh, right and left, secular, religious, uh, the divides that self-righteousness always erect uh, can, might show signs of coming down. <laughs> now, uh, you may know uh, 
John from his TED Talks, which have been viewed over three million times. If you haven't seen them, this is the first thing you should do when you get home. Um, but he was in Charlottesville, and we overlapped for about, you know, honestly, 10 months maybe. And now he teaches here uh, at the NYU, at the Stern School of Business. Uh, it is an enormous privilege and honor to introduce Jonathan Haidt. Thank you so much, David, and thank you all. Good morning. Um, what a pleasure it is to be here in this beautiful church uh, and at this beautiful event. <clears throat> My work is on how moral psychology blinds us to the truth, blinds us to the virtue in each other. And there are increasingly few places where people really do entertain openness to those who are different from them. Um, Christianity has such moral resources for helping us bridge these divides with, with virtues of forgiveness and humility. Those are the antidote to righteousness. And it was such a pleasure to go on the website of Mockingbird. Um, I had a title originally about certainty, and I will cover that. But just there was so much that really warmed my heart. This phrase here, if this is your mission, uh, to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life and then to be open to those realities. Um, as many of you know, and as, as David knows, I'm, I'm an atheist myself. I'm not a believer. Uh, and some, some uh, religious groups have therefore been wary uh, of me and my work. But many others uh, see that, first of all, I'm not hostile to religion at all. In fact, if we have time, I'll get to it. I think the new atheists just have completely misunderstood not just religion, but human psychology. And so the fact that Mockingbird uh, is both open to ideas wherever they are that can help you understand human nature, understand reality, and connect those to, uh, to the Christian religion. And the fact that, as I understand it, this congregation is fairly diverse politically, which is increasingly rare. Uh, denominations, Christian and Jewish, are all being torn apart on a left-right axis. So it's a pleasure to be here with this open-minded, politically diverse group. What I'm going to do today is uh, I thought I would talk to you about a couple of principles of moral psychology and then do what I can to connect them to your interests. So here's the original cover of, of the book that uh, David was talking about. Um, <clears throat> uh, and this, the slash mark, uh, the slash, the cut through the cover conveys what it's like to be an American these days, the feeling that something is ripped or divided. Uh, in the UK, it has a different edition, different art uh, department, so they came up with that cover, which is another way <laughs> of illustrating what moral psychology is all about. And then I, I sort of designed this one because, I, you know, ideas about demonization, Manichaean, you know, Manichaeism, so well captured uh, in, in Christianity, the idea of the division between good and evil. Uh, so this is the book. These are the three principles which, uh, which David referred to. And so I'll just briefly, I'll probably just do the first two because those are the ones that I think we can really uh, talk the most about, but we'll see. So this first one, which David already mentioned, um, the way to think about this is that the, uh, the basic, the most basic truth in, in psychology that sages in every culture have come up with is that the mind is divided into parts that sometimes conflict. And Plato uh, conceived of this as a charioteer reason who uh, can master the passions, the dumb and the, smart and the noble passions. And this is uh, what we should strive for, is mastery over these passions. But I came to see, in graduate school, and I was studying moral psychology, I came to see that David Hume actually is a much better psychologist. David Hume, who quite famously said that reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions. 
and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. Um, this just turns out to be true, and I cover all the, the research showing that in my, in my book. Uh, but rather than conceiving of reason as a butler or a servant like that, I think the best way is as a press secretary. And that you saw that again in the quote that David read. Um, this is Jay Carney, Obama's press secretary. He's very smart. But his goal is not to find the truth. His goal is to justify whatever the position of the administration is. That's what he does. I'll just very briefly uh, give you uh, some concepts that I find so useful, and I'd, I, I hope I can inject this into your discussions and your remaining time together and see if you can try to use these phrases at some point before you leave New York. It turns out that when we want to believe something, you know, you, we start off, if somebody tells you something, it could be something about politics, it could be something about the Bible, you have this instant flash of either liking it or disliking it. You find yourself leaning towards it or away from it. If you are leaning towards it, if you like it, you ask yourself, can I believe it? And then you send reasoning out on a search for some supporting evidence. And if reasoning finds even a single piece of supporting evidence, a single justification, you stop thinking. What we don't do is say, well, on balance, is it true? No, we say, can I believe it? Uh, here's an article I read yesterday. Yes, I can believe it. Done. But if you found yourself leaning away from it, if it's something about Obama and you don't like Obama, let's say, or whatever, vice versa, then um, something good about Obama and you don't like Obama, then you would say, must I believe it? Am I forced to believe it? Or can I find any reason to doubt this thing? For example, maybe the credibility of this guy who said it or, uh, or whatever. You say, must I believe it? And then you go looking for uh, kind of an escape hatch and you always find one because we're very, very smart. Reality is ambiguous. And so we can always find a reason to believe something or not to believe it. So here's one example, uh, an experiment showing this. In one experiment, uh, uh, subjects come into the lab, they're students in a psychology class, and they're given an article to evaluate what do you think about the methods of this study, and it's a study that shows a relationship between caffeine consumption and breast cancer. And then you're supposed to say, well, what do you think about the methods? Who do you think finds flaws in the methods of that study? Coffee drinkers. All coffee drinkers? Female coffee drinkers suddenly get hypercritical, but the sample size is only 800, and they didn't control for this and that, because female coffee drinkers look at a scientific study, and they say, must I believe it? And then they find reasons why they don't have to believe it. But everybody else doesn't start with that. They say, oh, okay, here's a scientific study. Oh, I guess, I guess caffeine causes breast cancer. Okay. Um, in another study, subjects come into the lab. They're paid, let's say, a nickel every time they correctly spot uh, a letter that flashes up on a screen. So, okay, what, what's that? What did I just flash up? Anyone notice? Okay, but what if you were paid to spot numbers? A nickel every time you spot a number, what's that? Okay, so reality is ambiguous. People are not crazy. Nobody thinks that's a Z or a T. But if you're paid to spot letters, you see it as a B. If you're paid to spot numbers, you see it as a 13. Okay, so reality is ambiguous, and we find the evidence out there in the ambiguous world to support what we believe. And once I have justifications, I know I'm right, and if you disagree with me, then you are either stupid or disingenuous. And a common move you'll see is people will say, I know you're not stupid, so you must be disingenuous. And this is part of the acceleration of righteousness. This is why we are all so convinced that we're right, and the other side is either stupid or evil. So that's, um, <clears throat> let me just link this uh, briefly. So this model is wrong. I just want to just link it briefly to the sorts of concerns that you guys have already raised. This is, uh, David wrote this wonderful blog post. Uh, I'm, boy, you can't ask for a better title than this. How do I love Jonathan Haidt? Let me count the ways. So 
Way number two, David said, was that height subordinates reason to emotion, uh, which approximates what Martin Luther called the bondage of the will. It would be hard to deny the congruence between the righteous mind and Ashley Null's formulation, uh, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. That's exactly right. That's exactly the way human psychology works. And that was the point of my first book, The Happiness Hypothesis, that most of the great truths in psychology have been discovered by sages East and West. So typically religious thinkers, uh, but thinkers of all sorts have discovered this basic psychology. I mean, the ancients were just horrible at chemistry and physics. There really is no reason to read them for chemistry and physics, but boy, did they get psychology. And I think Christianity and Buddhism in particular are two fonts of enormous wisdom into the nature of the psyche. That's all I'll say about the first one. And again, I hope as you have your discussions and as you see yourself, probably there's a lot of agreement here on, on uh, basic uh, sort of the moral matrix, the way the world works, your community. But as you see yourself interacting with those outside, just catch yourself asking, must I believe it and can I believe it? And, and try to, it's a, a way to help school yourself in becoming less righteous, I hope, less self-righteous, I should say. Uh, second, and this is, I think, the richest one and the one that, I'm most hopeful that Americans and people around the world will be thinking about is the breadth of morality. Um, in the philosophical literature, there's either you're a deontologist and you think morality is about duty and rights, or you're a utilitarian and you think it's about harm and suffering and reducing harm and suffering. Um, but just taking a descriptive view, just looking around the world, what are the things that people moralize? My, my colleagues and I believe that there are at least six psychological foundations. They're like the taste buds of the moral sense. So the first is care and harm. We're mammals, and by definition, that means we nurse our young. And if we nurse our young, it's not just that the female body has been shaped to nurse the young, it's that the female brain has been shaped to be nurturant. And in humans, where there's a lot of paternal investment, the male brain too. So we're compassionate, we're sympathetic, we don't like suffering, not just of our own children, but other people's children and cute animals. So we are built to care. And that is a taste bud of the moral mind, and that is a foundation upon which so much morality is built. Um, there's a big political difference. Uh, these are photos I took at Occupy Wall Street where there was a lot of talk about compassion. On the left, morality is built largely, primarily, on this one foundation. Uh, I've been to Tea Party rallies. I've studied the Tea Party. You don't find signs like this at a Tea Party rally. The second foundation, fairness and cheating, is universal. Uh, they're all, these are all universally present, but they're not always built on in the same way. So ideas of fairness, justice, reciprocity, all of that, you always find that. Um, there's a real concern about cheaters and slackers and free riders and those who are taking without giving. Um, on the left, though, morality, uh, I'm sorry, uh, fairness mostly means equality, especially these days when we're, the left is so focused on income inequality. Um, so these are self-evident arguments. If the 1% own 43% of the wealth, that is self-evidently unfair if you're on the left, but not if you're on the right. If you're on the right, you'd want to know, well, did the 1% produce more wealth? Did they work harder? Um, this is an interesting cartoon. Um, equality to a conservative means as long as everybody has the same starting point, that's fair, that's equal. But to a liberal, um, a liberal says, well, the guy on the left doesn't need his box, so we should take it from him and give it to the shorter one who needs it. So this is, there's a big left-right difference in our country about what fairness means. We all say f we favor fairness. Um, on the right, it's not about equality at all. It's about proportionality. Spread my work ethic not my wealth. And this one is the clearest. Stop punishing success with a graduated income tax. Stop rewarding failure 
with bailout programs and welfare for those who don't work. So this is where we're stuck as a country. We, th we all think we favor fairness, and it's self-evidently true that our side is right. The third foundation is liberty and oppression. We all favor liberty. Uh, but on the left, I'm sorry, on the right, the villain, the oppressor, is the government. Whereas on the left, the oppressor is corporate interest, as you see in that flag, which has all those corporate logos. This is a liberal coffee shop, which decorated its entire interior entirely with symbols of oppression and liberty, this one foundation uh, decoration scheme. So ideas of social justice, um, ideas of positive liberty are based on this more compassionate view of liberty, where the government is the protector. The fourth foundation, loyalty and betrayal, there are some other animals that can work together in groups, small groups like wolves, um, but we're the only species that can get together in very large groups that are not kin. You guys, I was about to say, you know, none of you guys are siblings, but I guess the two leaders are, but never mind. Um, <laughs> we're great at getting together with people who are not related to us. And we do this because we, we form groups and we then have a sense of loyalty. We love this so much. Basically, we evolved for intergroup competition, conflict, war even. We evolved for war um, and peace, but we're very good at, at both. And we like that so much that we invented sports so we could practice this pretend war. And then we love practicing it so much that we invented super fandom because this becomes part of our identity, which I guess is a theme of your time together here. Now, on the left, there's a lot of skepticism of this, especially at the national level. So this is actually a photo. This actual, this photo is like right across the street from, from, the, from the church. This was on Jefferson Street. This was actually literally at, right in front of your church. Uh, somebody vandalized this about, uh, in about 2008 or so. Um, and at Occupy Wall Street, lots of American flags, they mostly had writing on them. Um, the left is not... Is, is concerned about nationalism, patriotism, jingoism. A more positive spin, relevant, I think, for Christians in particular, it's not so much anti-patriotism, it's universalism. Coexist. God bless the people of every nation. That's the positive view of the left's view of groupishness. They don't like groupishness as much. On the right, you see a lot of American flags, much more patriotism. You see a lot more concern with treason, patriotism. So we've got a big left-right divide on this moral foundation and whether it should be used. The fifth foundation authority and, uh, versus subversion. Um, there's no doubt that we are primates and primates do hierarchy. We evolve for hierarchy. We can do equality too, but we show deference. We evolved ways of showing deference. Um, on the left, there's a reluctance to build on this foundation. This is a coffee mug that you could get um, if you subscribe to The Nation, a liberal magazine, and it celebrates insubordination because authority is oppression. Authority is a bad thing. Therefore, subverting authority is good. Um, on the right, there's a very different idea. This was a church just south of Charlottesville. God's in charge, so shut up. <laughs> okay. The sixth foundation, sanctity and degradation, also very, very familiar to Christians and Jews and Muslims and Hindus. The idea that the body is a temple. There is something pure that must be protected it doesn't matter if this action is harmless and if you enjoy it, if it is inconsonant with your nature as a child of God or a creation of God, if you should not be doing that with your body, uh, then it, it is wrong. So this is an, uh, an image of the allegory of chastity, showing the Virgin Mary in a, basically a rock chastity belt with pure water flowing beneath her legs and lions with gold shield. I mean, it's really heavy iconography about purity. Uh, and that resonates on the cultural right and certainly among Christian conservatives. But on the left, this is taken as oppression, oppression of women. And so this is from Madonna's album uh, book, actually, Sex, in the 1980s. Any sort of sexuality is, 
is, is, is opposed to that Puritanism, celebrate all forms of sexuality. This is a bumper sticker uh, found a car in Charlottesville. Your body may be a temple, but mine's an amusement park. Um, and this is a photo I took at Occupy Wall Street. I have no idea what it means or why anybody wrote it, but you could not see such a photo at a conservative rally. It could not exist. But there's an idea on the left, again, that this foundation is not a valid foundation of morality. So to put this all together, I have a website. You can go to yourmorals.org. You can take our surveys. What we find is that this is data. Well, this on these items, it's about 4,000 people. But we have about 300,000 people have taken our surveys. What this shows, when, when you register at the site, you, you say whether you're liberal or conservative. So people on the left, as you'll see, um, well, actually, here, so let's start with on the right. People on the right actually value all of those foundations roughly equally. They value them all. But on the left, they reject loyalty, authority, and sanctity. Those are the three lower lines there. They don't endorse them. They don't want to build on them. This is summing together a bunch of items for each foundation. They put care first. That is the most important moral foundation. And then fairness and liberty after that. So it's a three foundation versus a six foundation. Now, why this matters to you, I think, is the following. Um, <clears throat> so soon after I wrote the book, I started getting contacted by a lot of Jewish organizations. I'm Jewish, and I say so in the book. And all these Jewish organizations read my account of the culture war and how America's getting ripped apart. They say, oh, my God, the exact same thing's happening to Jews. In Israel, certainly, and again, it's primarily over what do we do about the Palestinians and the territories, um, but also among Jews in New York. I mean, they're at each other's throats. There's real hostility, and it's very much the left-right divide. Um, it's psychologically, it's very similar to the left-right divide we see uh, elsewhere. And so there's this wonderful article <clears throat> by uh, Yossi Klein-Halevi. He talks about these two strands in Judaism. He talks about how there are Pesach Jews. Pesach is Passover. Jews who, who uh, are focusing on the lesson of Passover, which is we were slaves once, so don't do that. Understand those who are oppressed and liberate them. Bring freedom and liberation to everyone. And then there's the lesson of Purim, uh, when the Jews were... Uh, were uh, taken into bondage and uh, uh, the nation was, dest was uh, destroyed. And the lesson is be tough. Beware of your enemies. They'll destroy you. Um, and there's this wonderful line in here. Uh, he says, so, the, so he says, uh, Jewish history speaks to our generation in two voices. The first command is the voice of Passover, of liberation. The second is the voice of Purim, commemorating our victory over the genocidal threat of Haman, a descendant of Amalek. Passover Jews are motivated by empathy with the oppressed. Purim Jews are motivated by alertness to threat. Both are essential. One without the other creates an unbalanced Jewish personality, a distortion of Jewish history and values. Now, can you guess which party these two kinds of Jews vote for? It's totally obvious, because the psychological dimension is such that if your morality focuses on, on care and, and liberating the oppressed, you're going to move to the left. You're going to vote for the Democratic Party. So there are liberal Jews who support the Democrats, and there are conservative Jews who support the Republicans. So it's the same culture war playing out on Jewish issues, making it difficult for Jews to work together when Israel, in particular, faces so many threats. So it's, it's terrible. Uh, many Jews are upset about this, but they're stuck. But it's not just Jews. Um, so many headlines in the newspapers. So much has been going on, especially over gay marriage. Uh, these are that's the New York Times on the top. It's a, just two, a couple of months ago, an article in the New Yorker. So Christian congregations are being torn apart. Now, of course, Catholics kind of have to stay together. Protestants have long split up into left and right 
um, left and right uh, um, denominations, uh, but many, such as Episcopalian, Episcopalianism, where there was a lot, there was a, a range of diversity, um, then are are splitting either formally or informally, locally or internationally. So it's these same forces, it's these same uh, different split of foundations can tear apart Christian denominations. This was a, a wonderful blog post by uh, Jenny Woodring. If you just Google Jenny Woodring and Episcopal, you'll find it. Uh, what she noticed, she wrote to me a couple weeks ago, and she was uh, talking about the, uh, the, the baptismal covenant. And she said, here are the six main commandments, if you, if she, if you, if you sort of lump them together. Here are the six things that Episcopalians are that they're supposed to say at, at baptism. And what she noticed is that uh, when there, she's in more liberal congregations, uh, they seem to focus primarily on the last two. Serve Christ, love your neighbors, strive for justice and peace, respect the dignity of every human being. But in more, more conservative uh, Episcopalian uh, churches, they do all six, but they especially will focus on the ones in red. So uh, when there's a range of morality presented to you, you'll focus on the ones that resonate with you, that you like, and this could lead to a split. Um, so that's all I'll say about that one. I want to leave time for conversation, so I'll go very, very briefly over this one. Um, the point here is, well, all right, this might be fine. Um, so in 2007 or so was the high-water mark of the New Atheists, and they all argued that religion is this trick um, it, you know, uh, religious beliefs are memes that worm their way into our head and they make people do self-destructive things like blowing themselves up. And we can't have evolved to kill ourselves, so religion is, is a trick, it's an illusion, it's a terrible thing. If we could get rid of this delusion, then everyone would be better off. Um, but after that, a wave of books came out, including my own, that take a very different look at religion and that look at it from an evolutionary perspective as well, but I think a much more careful evolutionary perspective, which is to say, does that does our, do our religious minds show the hallmarks of adaptation? So whether or not God exists, we have a nature which has spiritual experiences. There's, nobody disagrees that we have these experiences. The question is why? And me and David Stone Wilson and Aaron Noren Zion and many others believe that, that our evolutionary history is such that we have these experiences. Religion is actually an adaptation. Uh, and here's the way to think about it. Um, there are only a few animals on Earth that can do large-scale cooperation, but they're always siblings. Bees, there's a termite mound, a giant termite mound. They're always siblings. We are the only species that found a different way, and the way we found is religion. When you find early civilizations, you always find temples. You don't find any civilization that I've ever heard of that rose to any level without starting with temples. So this is ancient Babylon. This is Tenochtitlan. Uh, this is, of course, Mecca. Um, and what you find is that people circle around sacred objects, and in circling around them, either literally or figuratively, they bind themselves together. And the metaphor here is that it's like when you, when you move a wire through a magnetic field, it generates a current. Circling generates a kind of social electricity that binds you together and allows you to do work. And so uh, it doesn't have to be a god or a temple or an ancestor. It can be a flag. The flag serves this function in war. It can be a leader. Um, it seems like a long time ago, but the left certainly was uh, unified around Obama for, uh, for a while. Um, um, but when you do this, when you generate this current, you get polarization. Our side is the positive side. We're perfectly good. And their side's the negative side. They're perfectly evil. And anybody who says otherwise on our side is a traitor. Um, 
various objects get elevated to sacredness. On the right, it's the Bible and the flag, and uh, all kinds of cultural issues over whether the flag can be used in art or put on the floor, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Martin Luther King is certainly sacred on the left. You will never hear a Martin Luther King joke. I certainly hope that you won't, but the point is that each side has its sacred objects. Um, and I take a Durkheimian view, which is that the function, what, re what religions do, is they bind groups into moral communities. Um, now, I'll skip over this stuff. This is just a, there's research on how the fact that religions often require you to give up things, to wear uncomfortable clothing. Um, it's, you know, one of the, there are really two big obstacles, I think, to converting to Judaism. There's that circumcision thing, and then there's the fact that you can't eat lobster. That really, I think, prevents people. Um, um, so giving up all sorts of things that are often quite delicious. It turns out that what the self-flagellation, there's all these things that religions do. Well, it turns out they actually do work to make people trust the group, commit to the group, be part of the group. I'll skip over. This is covered in my book. I'll skip it. It takes a while to explain this study. But there's empirical evidence showing that religious communities that ask a lot of sacrifice last a long time. Those that don't ask for much don't last as long. So a metaphor here is that gods are like maypoles. They help groups to cohere. And this, I think, helps explain this interesting finding, which you'll be very pleased to know. Um, there's this wonderful book, American Grace. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's, it's a, a report on the state of religion in America. And this is by you know, secular liberal uh, political scientists and sociologists. They report that by many different measures, religiously observant Americans are better neighbors and better citizens than secular Americans. And what they mean by that, looking at the data about giving, they say they're more generous with their time and money, especially helping the needy, and they're more active in community life. And then, you know, you wonder, okay, well, why is that? You know, some critics would say, well, sure, because they think they're going to go to hell, and then, you know, they're just maximizing their utility by trying to... Um, but it turns out Putnam asked for all sorts of measures, how often do you pray? Do you believe in hell? Do you believe in this? None of that stuff mattered. What, what religion you were didn't matter. One thing predicts who is more generous and a better community member. It's frequency of church attendance and degree to which you are bound into the community. That's what does it. It's how enmeshed you are in the moral community. As they say in summary, it is religious belongingness that matters for neighborliness, not religious believing. Because if you're in a community that's always talking about these virtues, Christian virtues, humility, forgiveness, love, this affects you. This constrains you in positive ways. So that's all I'll say. I'll, uh, I know we're just about, uh, I think, we're, well, I guess we have five more minutes if I'm to take 30 minutes. And I'd love to hear your thoughts um, about whether moral psychology applies, how it can help you understand the issues you care about, how it can help to connect you uh, to whatever that said on the, whatever your mission was about yes. the Christian mission. Well, first let's, so. let's give Dr. Heinrich. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> Any questions, uh, comments? So my question is, yesterday Tim Kreider spoke to us, and he was talking about um, religion or belief as a delusion mm -hmm. and implying that there's a negative aspect to that. What do you think that he would be talking about? That's interesting. That? So you had a guy in here telling you that belief is a delusion, that religious <laughs> belief is a delusion? Yeah. yeah. Huh. That's a paraphrase. Okay. Um, it's a well, MacGuffin. So you know, I think a, a big finding in psychology is that uh, there are many false beliefs that are very positive for us. So, for example, if you look at who's happily married, it's not people who see their spouse accurately. It's people who have <laughs> deludedly false, positive views of their spouse. 
if you look at uh, who is successful in life, uh, if you look at entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs fail so often. The great majority of entrepreneurial ventures fail. But entrepreneurs who have an unrealistically positive view work harder, they have more faith, they stick with it more. Um, so from a psychological point of view or an evolutionary point of view, the key thing is not is every belief true, it's what are the effects of holding this belief. And now certainly there are religious beliefs that I think are quite toxic. And it's often been observed that America is much more religious than other Western nations. Um, I, part of what I think is going on here is that in America, there's this interesting theory, in America, we've never had a state religion. We have a free market in religion. So all these religions are changing, innovating, and trying to attract other people. So the toxic ones tend to disappear. They don't attract people. Um, there's, what's his name, Fred Phelps in Florida. But that's mental illness. He, that's not a real church, seriously. That is, he's mentally ill, and the people in it are his kin. It's not a real church that's recruiting people. So I think that there are fundamentalist beliefs that are toxic, and then there are religions in which fundamentalism plays a bigger role. So many have observed Islam has not had the kind of, of reformation that Christianity had. Um, you know, I think there's more, I mean, there's a lot of terrorism is related to secular values, Marxism, but there are certain religions that would be more, uh, so what I'm getting at is religious beliefs can be identified. If you are hostile to religion, and this is a lot of what Sam Harris's books are about, you can find so many cases where religious beliefs, diluted religious beliefs lead to violence. You can definitely find that. But overall, the finding of Putnam and Campbell is that Christian Americans, religious Americans of all sorts, are better citizens. So on net, whether, you know, even if many beliefs are false, they are not dangerous or toxic. That would be overall. John, can you tell us about the wager you had with Sam Harris recently? <laughs> sure. So, um, so Sam Harris and I disagree on a lot of stuff. And you know, he, we disagree on religion, uh, but I'm not an expert on religion. Um, he then writes a book on morality, and you know, this is my field. And I thought he totally botched it, uh, but okay, I didn't say much. Then, so it's a book called The Moral Landscape. I really didn't like it. Um, and he says that moral truths are actual truths like the truths of physics and chemistry. There's a real moral truth, and science can tell us what is morally right. And I thought this was totally wrong. All right, but I didn't say anything. So then, six months ago, he, he, he has this moral landscape challenge. He'll give 2,000, he says, if anyone can prove why I was wrong in this book uh, uh, and so that I changed my mind, I'll give him $10,000. Now, okay, in one sense, you got to say, well, that's great for scientists to want to seek out disconfirmation, but given everything I've told you about must I believe versus can I believe it, and given that Harris, when he writes, seems particularly self-righteous and certain. So I thought, there's no way this guy is going to change his mind. And, um, and so just for fun, I thought, why don't I make a public bet too? And I said, if anybody can actually change Harris's mind, I'll give Harris the $10,000 that it would cost him to change his mind. And part, and so, and part of this, I showed this thing here. So I, because I'd done this analysis, I did this word, the linguistic analysis of all the new atheist books. And there's a program that counts, it, it counts up all the words that are related to certainly, like, definitely, certainly, absolutely, positively. And Harris is on the left. He, uh, 2% of the words in his book are certain words. 2% of every word, of, of you know, 2% of his words. Uh, and then Dan Dennett and, and uh, uh, Dawkins are also very high. Uh, me, I'm on, the, I'm on the right there with Noren uh, Zion, who I mentioned before. So, you know, scientists don't write that way. Scientists use lower levels of certainty. And just for fun, I threw in Glenn Beck, Sean Hannity, and Ann Coulter, and it turns out 
that Sam Harris is much higher than, than them. Um, it also it seems, I think that I won the bet, but what, it's funny what happened. So Harris was going to announce the winner, but all he really did is he just sent a single tweet announcing. So there was a little competition, which is the best essay will get $2,000, and if he changes his mind, then they get $10,000. So he just sent out a tweet saying this guy in Australia, I think it was, won the $2,000. And that's all we know. for So, so he hasn't said anything. I think he's just going to leave it at that. Let's see. Any, any other responses, questions? Oh, yes. Uh, hi. Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us. Um, you mentioned sort of your first point that uh, people tend to view new information to entrench their beliefs that they mm -hmm. already have. Yes. Do you have, maybe you talk about it in the book, uh, do you have an intuition as to why people would fall on the right or the left in the first <coughs> place and then proceed to entrench mm -hmm. themselves? Where sure. They fall? Yes. So, the, um, so chapter 12 of the book is basically an answer to why do people fall on the right and the left. The very, very short version of it is this. Um, the biggest discovery in psychology in the last 50 years is that everything is heritable. How much you like funk music from the 70s. If you have an identical twin, separate at birth, that person will find funk music from the 70s more appealing than chance. Everything about us is partially heritable, but nothing is fully heritable. Turns out that's true for political beliefs too. Identical twins separate at birth tend to have similar politics, similar levels of religiosity. Your parents determine your religion, but your genes determine your level of religiosity once you leave home. Not fully, but to a large extent. Um, and so your genes make your brain. Uh, your brain has certain traits. Some brains really like novelty, variety, diversity. When those people go to college or wherever they go, they find certain ways of living, certain social groups, certain kinds of belief, diversity, travel, uh, universalism. They find that just resonates more with them. Other people are more conscientious. They're, they like order and predictability. Those people find conservative ideas more appealing. So it's not that your genes give you your politics, but your genes give you a brain that on average will find one side or the other more appealing. Now, most people in the middle, most people aren't you know, predisposed either way. But people who are politically active, the activists on both sides, they have very different personalities. And, that's, and so was this, there was a second reason. What was your second question? What was it? Okay. Okay, I think that's all we have time for, unfortunately. But um, let's give Dr. Hyde another big round of applause. <laughs> we have both of his books for sale. Uh, out of the book table, and we hope uh, you stop by. But uh, this is goodbye. Thank you so much.